Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. It's my pleasure to uh, be your moderator today. My name is Knut Peterson. And uh, before we get started, if everyone can turn off their cell phone, that would be much appreciated. Uh, the session is being recorded, so a warning to to the speaker, of course. We, we, he's already been warned, so, but I'm sure he will speak uh, uh, appropriately anyway. Uh, if you can have someone at the, each table make sure that the $11 per person is in the basket, we'll pick up the basket at the end of this presentation. Uh, SACPA is a volunteer organization, non-profit, uh, but we do, uh, we do have a little bit of, we, we, we actually collect a dollar from each, from out of the $11, we collect $1 to keep uh, operation fluid. And uh, we also get a little bit of help from the university to keep us uh, going. Memberships are available as well. We encourage people to buy a membership. Uh, Annalise will gladly take your money. Uh, I also like to thank Country Kitchen Catering for serving us great lunches around here. Every time we are here, we, we are surprised how what $11 will buy. Uh, Shaw TV is uh, broadcasting our presentations every week, several times, uh, usually at 7 o'clock in the evening. Uh, CKXU 88.3 is broadcasting our presentations as well, and also the question period, live. And the Lethbridge Herald usually report on our sessions as well and helps out advertising them. On to the speaker, striving for fairness. How does Alberta's ombudsman connect the dots? Uh, Peter Hurhan is uh, our speaker today. He's Alberta's ombudsman. He's the uh, eighth ombudsman in Alberta's history. Uh, it was started in 1967, having an ombudsman in Alberta. Uh, first uh, jurisdiction in North America to have such. Um, coming from uh, Denmark myself, uh, I'm very familiar with, I think the term ombudsman is actually either Swedish, Danish, or I think maybe Swedish it is. Uh, so I'm quite familiar with ombudsman. And I'm sure that job have changed many times over the years in, in terms of how you deal with governments. Uh, without further ado, I'd like to in, invite uh, Peter Hurian up here and uh, invite you to give him a warm welcome. Check my watch. It is good afternoon. So uh, good afternoon, everybody. Um, thank you for the introduction. And uh, I guess when I came in and I heard, I heard the accent, 
I thought, oh, here's somebody who does know what the word ombudsman means and what it's about, and, and that's uh, part of our goal is to make sure people do know that. Um, so that's good. Thank you. I am Peter Auerhan, and I'm Alberta's uh, Ombudsman and Public Interest Commissioner. I was appointed as the 8th Ombudsman for Alberta in October 2011. And as uh, was mentioned in the introduction, we started, um, the first one was Soren in, um, started business on September 1st, 1967. And I see it's the same year that... Uh, the other five officers, just so you know, of the independent officers of the legislature are the Auditor General, the Privacy Commissioner, the Chief Electoral Officer, the Child and Youth Advocate, and the Ethics Commissioner. As an independent officer of the Legislative Assembly of Alberta, I report direct to the Assembly, so I don't actually have a boss. I don't report to a minister, I don't report to an MLA or a committee or the Premier or the Speaker. I report, to the general, I report generally to the Legislative Assembly. And that gives me, um, and should give me, the power of independent thought, which is the important piece of what an independent officer is and what they represent. When I first got the job, I thought, you know, I came out of uh, a long career with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and I thought, boy, I'm not going to have a boss. That's going to be wonderful. I can, you know, I'll be able to make decisions, because then I said, you know, a number of times, wouldn't it be nice not to have, you know, people in your way when you want to do something, when you think it's a great idea to have to go through a bunch of bosses to do that? So I finally landed on the desk at the Ombudsman office, and I had that ability. And I, I thought it was a great idea until you start to think about it. Now, not having a boss actually comes with a significant amount of heightened responsibility. Because now you don't have somebody sort of helping you check some of your sillier ideas. So you have to make sure that you're right. So it, it's, a, it's an interesting concept, but one that I take very seriously, and I know my counterparts around the country, as well as the ones that have preceded me, take it extremely seriously in terms of how we think and, and the decisions and recommendations that we make. Both offices, the Ombudsman and the Public Interest Commissioner Office, act as independent parties the, and third parties. So we're, we're offices of, uh, well, on the one hand of last resort and the other hand of assistance, but as a third party. This is an important point when it comes to the public's perception of what our office does and why we make the decisions that we make. And I'll get into detail in that in a few minutes. And if I use the word decision, sometimes what I'm actually meaning um, in relation to the recommendations I make or in relation to the recommendations I make on both offices. I, I don't actually have decision-making power at the end of the day. There's a lot of decisions that I come to to come to recommendations, so uh, just bear with me if I use the words interchangeably sometimes. It's important to begin uh, point out at the beginning, first and foremost, about that independence. I wanted to drive that point home if I can. Um, I get challenged a lot about how independent I am and, and uh, whether or not I actually have that independence. But it's an important piece of our bureaucracy and of our democracy. Um, and the role that that office plays with the ministers, with the political parties, and all of the individual elected officials. As ombudsman, my main role is to ensure the standards of fairness are applied when the public interacts, or many would say when the public collides with the, with the provincial government. And I get my authority from the Ombudsman Act, which was brought in in 1967 and has had some minor moderation, uh, modifications over the years. The option of the ombudsman is really the, la the option of last resort for people who have complained about a decision that was made in reference to them in the administrative portion of the government. We're complaint-driven. I don't... Uh, um, that hasn't changed over the last 50, uh, 47 years. For the most part, we look at individual complaints. We look in, into them as thoroughly as we can to determine if there's any issues that can be dealt with in reference to the individual that's complaining, but also in reference to some systemic or more widespread issues that might exist within that individual complaint. However, that said, I can, I can do an investigation on what they call my own motion in the Act. So on my own initiative, I can look into more systemic issues. 
I could do that, I suppose, on a whim, but I wouldn't. I could do that based on an article in a newspaper or based on reports that I receive. But what we try to do is we try and look at any issues that we think might benefit from a systemic investigation. We try and do a bit of an analysis around those. How many complaints have we received that are similar? What's the status? What's the importance? What's the relevance in terms of where things are today? You know, are there, are there media articles out there? Is there chatter about it? Those kinds of things. And we look into what all of the areas before we determine whether or not we're actually going to do one. Um, I also investigate matters as, at the request of a minister or of a committee. I can tell you that they have been done in Alberta. I think there's been a total of 17 commi uh, committee or minister-ordered investigations over the years since 1967, but the last one was in 1995. And I'm not sure why that's sort of dropped off, but I suppose it's probably once, you know, when they're there and things are happening and things, people are resorting to them, people will continue to resort to them. But when they're out of mind, out of sight, they're out of mind. And I'd like to see that that, that um, take on a little more prevalence uh, in the future, and I will uh, be inviting government to make those um, moves to have minister-ordered investigations. What better way to show transparency and, and accountability than by looking through your own department, having an independent officer come in and look through it at your own request? In relation to my in investigations, I have significant powers at the front end, at the investigational stage. <clears throat> significant powers that not many have, and that is I have the power that I can order people under oath to give me information that they have and compel their testimony or their information or their witness material. I also have the power to take and seize and look at whatever I want, any document, anything. I can go in and I can march into a government department and I can collect those things. I can leave them a receipt, take copies, give back the originals and, and whatnot um, when I'm done with them. That's a significant power that that certainly not many people have in, in our society and in our democracy today. Now that said, that with that great amount of power comes the, uh, the flip side when the investigations are done and I make recommendations. I don't have decision-making power at the end of the day. I only can make recommendations back to the government entity or department where the situation is, is at question. And the reason for that is kind of, it's a, a bit of a... Uh, hamster wheel, if you will. I have great power because I only have the ability to have recommendations. And I have the ability to make significant recommendations because I have great powers. But on the, if I lost, if I wanted to get decision-making power, I would have to give up some of those powers on the investigational side because then people's rights would jump in to place, not that people shouldn't be dealt with fairly, but rights and, and the ability for um, a more litigious approach to this would come into play. And we'd be back to a, a more legal system. And keep in, we want to keep in mind that the ombudsman was brought in to work its way through red tape and government relatively quickly and not become part of the problem. So that's why the power and the recommendation um, authority rest with the office as they do. After, when I do make res recommendations after an investigation, I have the power within the recommendations, I do have the power of moral suasion or persuasion and publicity. Now some people would say that that's not very significant other people, the media, for one, would say that it's extremely significant. And you just look to where, what thing, how things can change in our society by pub, through publicity. Now that said, we want to make sure that we do it properly. We have to be correct when we do it because there's, there's a huge amount of, of responsibility that comes with being public. Especially in the Ombudsman Act where a significant portion of our, our workload revolves around total confidentiality and indeed secrecy with a complainant. 
who feels that they've been dealt with unfairly. We're expected to keep it confidential. So sometimes I get asked, why aren't you more public with it? And it's because we're protecting confidentiality for the individual, not for the government. That's not the issue. The issue is for the, for the individual complainant. We do work in a collaborative focus. Our office does enjoy a widespread endorsement of the work we do, and we can achieve most benefits that Albertans deserve in, in terms of our moral persuasion. Make no mistake, though, I will apply the pressure if I need to. It's also noteworthy that I, um, in terms of my decisions and recommendations, I don't have any jurisdiction over ministers or the courts. Those are dealt with by the executive or the judicial arm of government. So I'm in the, I'm in the administrative stream. So I can look at the administration, the bureaucracy, that side of, of our, our structures. The judiciary is handled by the courts, and they look after that. So I, I, I'm not allowed to interfere in those areas. And the executive, the elected officials, are dealt with by folks like you, the electorate. And if you don't like the decisions that they make as MLAs and ministers and as government, then, of course, your decision to re-elect or not to re-elect is where it, it comes into play. We have jurisdiction over all the provincial departments. As well, we have the authority to investigate provincial agencies, boards, commissions, such as WCB, Crown corporations such as uh, ATB, uh, financial, and professional associations such as College of Physicians and Surgeons or nurses and those sorts of things. I do, I do not have jurisdiction over Alberta Health Services, which is a common misunderstanding, except in a very small window through their patient concerns office. I'm restricted in a, my authority to investigate complaints against Alberta Health Services about the facilities and the care and the treatment until patient concerns has looked at it. So if anybody has a complaint there, they have to go through Alberta Health Services, go through the patient concerns office. At the end of the day, if you're not happy with the decision that patient concerns makes, I can go look into that decision that they made, but I can only look into the administrative fairness of what patient concerns did. Similarly, I don't have jurisdiction over privately contracted services. So where government gets into, into uh, an arrangement where private contracts come into play and take over what, what prior to that was government service, I have no jurisdiction there. I'd like to have jurisdiction there. And when asked by, by government, when asked by the uh, Legislative Offices Committee, I state that I would like jurisdiction there. I would like to see the jurisdiction more or less follow the money. If government is making all the rules and paying all the bills, and it was government or ought to be government in, in terms of the similar types of functions that it's providing, then I think it should have jurisdiction underneath the Ombudsman Office. Other complaints that we um, may investigate could involve, and lots of them do, involve the denial of funding or support through programs such as AISH or Alberta AIDS to Daily Living. Inmates at, professional, at provincial correctional centers uh, complain to our office. One example might be an inmate on segregation who's not provided telephone or shower facilities, and it can happen. After they've gone through the relevant appeals or review processes, we may be in a position to investigate a complaint from that area. One of the reasons that we investigate these areas is because there's a, a certain amount of expectations that Albertans have about fairness, and that's continuing to rise in a, in a favorable fashion. Fairness is expected, and fairness ought to be delivered. It wasn't all that long ago that the government decision makers could just say no. They didn't have to give reasons. They just said you would go in and apply for something. They say no, nope, denied. You know, it seems like they had two stamps, right? No and denied, no others. And that's no longer effective. You can't do that anymore. And we'll make sure that that doesn't happen any longer, especially in an area where, era where accountability and transparency are key. Albertans should expect all public sector institutions to clearly demonstrate what they've investigated, what their decisions are, and how and why they've made those decisions. 
And the more complex and complicated the government gets, the more challenging, can, more challenging it can be for Albertans to navigate through that bureaucracy. If you just think back, in 1967, the Ombudsman was brought into Alberta to navigate through that bureaucracy because it was felt that it was getting a little bit intimidating, a little bit confusing to work, its way, work your way through it. Move ahead 47 years, just think what it's like today, how complex it is with all of the changes that have come in since 1967. And that's why it's important that for people to understand that the role of our, what the role our office plays. We may be in a position to help. We may not, but we may be, and that's where we encourage people to call. Our work is largely based on the legal concept of administrative fairness. There are a number of administrative fairness guidelines we measure when investigating a complaint. These guidelines have been developed over the years through the case law. This includes whether a decision maker was, for example, biased in their decision. We also look at whether a decision maker followed the correct procedure and made the decision in accordance with the legislation, or even if the person making the decision had the legal ability to do so. <coughs> Pardon me. We also ask, did the complainant have a right to an appeal that was not provided? Have people been given a fair and, and uh, full ability to present their case to the decision maker? Oh, thank you. Were proper reasons given to the person, to the complainant, when going through the process? And was the process fair? If a review committee is making a decision and has provided the evidence it considered, has it provided the evidence it considered to, when, to the complainant when making the complaint? If we find someone was treated unfairly by a government authority, we're able to make recommendations, as I said earlier. That might be in the form of a policy change. When a policy is in conflict with legislation, we may recommend that it be realigned with the legislation. And policy is an interesting concept right now because, um, like, for example, I was talking to the Deputy Minister of Transportation here about a year and a half ago, and we were talking about policy changes. And the Department of Transportation has, in the vicinity of 400 different policies. And of those 400 policies, most of them interact with policies from other departments, and there's 19 other departments. And when you get start to look at the intermingling and the requirements to go, one small change in policy can take a significant amount of time and energy to change. So there's a couple things in there. It's important to get them changed when they need changing, but it's also important to understand the challenges that that can present. So don't make those, those recommendations lightly, and I don't. If we find the practice of a department or an authority is not aligned with policy, uh, we will recommend it be aligned, and we'll track to make sure that it is. For example, if you know, WCB sets a policy on their own accord to say that they're going to deal with a, with a person in 30 days, but they're not doing so for 50, we'll go in there and tell them something's not working right. Live up to your own standards. So we may, we may recommend those changes. We may look at the challenges that they have and listen to that, for sure. We're all about, we're all about government effectiveness and ability. We're not about infallibility, but we do expect them to be fair. I can say, that too, that um, if you're wondering, most of our recommendations are accepted and implemented. When I say most, approximately 98% of them are. When we make a recommendation, it's generally in, uh, put into place. Some aren't. When they aren't, it's because there's a definite disagreement with us, and if that's the case, um, and I still am adamant, I will take that up to the minister. If the minister's adamant but so am I, that they won't do anything and I'm still adamant that I want to, then I can take it further and I can take it to the Legislative Assembly and they can debate it there. Does that happen very often? No, it hasn't happened since I've been here. I don't believe it happened um, for the last two ombudsmen before that, and uh, I can't say before that I haven't done the research on that, but it doesn't happen very often, which is good because it means that we're, we're accepted before we get to that stage. One thing I'd like to point out, we don't advocate for a complainant. I, I'm not allowed to be an advocate and ought not to be. I'm about fair. I advocate for fairness. At the same time, I don't defend government. I look at it this way. 
I do advocate for fairness. So if I find that it, the person's been treated fairly, I have to deal with that. If I find they've been treated unfairly, I deal with it in that respect. And like I said, our goal is fairness, not infallibility, but a high level of fairness. And government wants it as well, so I'm there to help them put it into place. While government can make unfair decisions and treat people unfairly, not every complaint I get is valid about the government treating them unfairly. And you know, the most difficult job that our investigators have in my office is having a conversation with somebody who feels they were dealt with unfairly when they were dealt with fairly. It's a really tough conversation to have because the person does feel that they were treated unfairly and they don't come by that in an insincere way at all. They're very sincere. But they're frustrated and they're tired and they've jumped through hoops and dealing with the complex maze of the bureaucracy and they're at their wits end. So it takes a lot of convincing for us to tell somebody that they've been treated fairly. Do we succeed all the time? No, not by any means. But sometimes we can. We can, we can show them how it was done, how others were treated in the same circumstance and that sort of thing. And hopefully we can provide some comfort and that they can get past the aggravation that they've suffered through the system that they had to deal with. The same thing goes with the, dyna the same dynamics apply with the, with the authorities I deal with. Sometimes they're, not, they're pretty reluctant to listen to what I've got to say, but I work with them and encourage them to understand the change, understand that I am there to help and that I am part of the process of moving forward, not there to be a thorn in their side. Unfortunately, we've had a good history in Alberta where we've been able to uh, continue that and continue with that um, understanding of our office. Our, inve our investigations may result in a complaint gaining a benefit, but that's not particularly our goal. Our goal is the process and the ability that they have to work their way through the system. Hopefully, it helps the individual, but where it doesn't, we often are telling individuals, it's, we can't do a lot for you right now. Let's say it's somebody that was treated rudely when they shouldn't be. We can go back and say, you were treated rudely and you shouldn't be. I can't really take that genie, I can't get that genie back in the bottle, but what I can do is try and assist that department in making sure that that doesn't happen again to the extent possible, that sort of thing. Subtle corrections are changed, are, are, are made continually. And that's why I often, people ask me, what's your job like? And I say, well, it's kind of like driving a big ship through the ocean. There's a lot of minor corrections along the way that help us get to the get to the right place and for the and we get to the right place. Thank you. It's just unique. That said, I'm going to turn and give a few minutes of my time to the role of my job, the role of, of me as the public interest commissioner. We began on June 1st, 2013, like I said, and our role in this in this job is to facilitate and investigate allegations of wrongdoing and protect public servants who disclose those wrongdoings within the public sector. I have the authority, much like the Ombudsman Act, to use any tool I uh, need. I have the ability to speak with people, to take documents and go and enter a premises and that sort of thing. The, the people that, that, revolve, um, that fall under the Act are more than just employees of the public service of the departments of government out there. It also includes health practitioners. So doctors are included in large part. Um, there's about 9,200 physicians registered in Alberta and about 89% of those fall under our jurisdiction. Government's looking right now to see how the other 11 may apply in a different way or if they should, but suffice to say about 90% fall within our jurisdiction. Our large aim with the Public Interest Commissioner's Office is to try and change the culture where it needs changing to one where that the government and the people in it encourage public servants to come forward and report wrongdoings in their field of work and, and make positive change and not to be treated um, as an anti-organizational uh, individual, but be, to be embraced for, for the positive and uh, effective operations they can bring into the, into the organization. 
we, we can protect um, whistleblowers from reprisal. Um, that protection is limited in the sense that you can't protect something that hasn't happened, and if a reprisal occurs, we can't provide the, the protection until afterwards. But if someone discloses to us, they can disclose to us with confidentiality, and they can, they can disclose to us information that would otherwise be a breach of their confidential agreement with their employer um, in terms of if they go to the media and that sort of thing in certain circumstances because telling us is not a breach of that, and then I can deal with it. So that's one protection that we can have. We do accept anonymous disclosures from employees. And just what we, when they disclose, it has to be a wrongdoing. Now, a wrongdoing doesn't mean it was just wrong. It means it was a wrongdoing as defined in the Act. And that, that's a bit polarized in the sense that it has to be something serious. And it's an illegal act, so breaking the law, an, a, an act or a mission that creates an imminent risk to the health and safety of individuals, a specific threat to the environment, gross mismanagement of public funds, or knowingly uh, counseling somebody to do those kinds of things. A lot of people think that it just deals with a wrong, and it doesn't. I'm left with the act. Should it life into them as well? It's important that this is meaningful and it's not just window dressing. There needs to be effective education and a follow-through across the public sector, sector, and it's on, the onus is on those entities to provide that. Yes, we can provide some from my end, but the, the onus is on them as well. Information sessions, regular communication, not just an emailer out once every decade or so, but effective communication. You know, you, know, you often hear, just in conclusion, um, with each passing year, talk about government accountability and transparency. Certainly there's a certain amount of skepticism in a number of circles in that regard. There's a skepticism about the role of government, even to independent officers like myself, there's skepticism of whether or not we can be effective. I look at the Office of the Ombudsman and, and our ability to be effective there, and I say that we can be, and I think we can be as a public interest commissioner as well. But we, if we want uh, um, legislation to work, it has to come from everybody's uh, part. That's us, that's the government, that's the employees. We want government employees to come forward, we want government to protect them, and we want government to see this as effective. In recent days, our new Premier, Jim Prentice, spoke about introducing an Accountability Act. I love to hear those words. He talks about accountability and transparency. Again, I like those words. As far as I'm concerned, when they're said, they mean they want it in place and they want me to help them make sure it's in place. And that's part of my job. I'm going to encourage and uh, help them be accountable and be transparent. Our, our, the job of my office in both circumstances, Ombudsman and Public Interest Commissioner, is to part, hold government to its own words, and I will do that. And I'm, um, after, thank you, and after the lunch, I'm happy to take your questions. Thank you very much, Peter.